there, Hyperfixation Nation. This is the Get Your Fix podcast where we chat all things fandom, good, bad, and ugly with me, your host, Von Reyes. So thank you for joining me as always. Um, you can also read more about the GYF project and subscribe on all your favorite platforms by visiting getyourfixpod.card.co. That's C-A-R-R-D. Um, just in case you want to read more about the project or if you're new or um, even if you just like want a little refresher or you just want to check out the website and support me, that would be awesome. Y'all were so incredibly sweet about my top 10 anime openers. Uh, I got a few DMs about what are your favorite openers on Instagram and I had some recommendations shared with me. So that was super, super fun. Uh, definitely keep them coming. Um, I, I'm really, I had a lot of fun with that episode um, and I had a couple people tell me that they listened to the playlist. So love that. So thank you so much. Um, So today I thought I'd get into one of my favorite YouTubers of all time. So YouTube is super popular nowadays, but I feel like not everyone was into YouTube in the early 2000s as like a, a medium of entertainment. So like many of the things I've talked about, it's kind of hard to imagine, but nobody at my school was like watching YouTube. I had like three friends that were on YouTube, like watching YouTube. And there's this like amazing cohort of old school YouTubers who have really shaped the platform to be what it is today um, and make it a viable option as a creative career for so many people. So nowadays, following a YouTube creator is as commonplace as following any musician or actor or anything else. Um, A lot of them have like Discord channels, they have brands, um, they have exclusive content on their paid subscription communities on YouTube. Um, It's a really lucrative lucrative platform now, but when I first started watching YouTubers, I feel like it was really like the golden age of YouTube, at least in my opinion. Um, For the people that were making videos at that time, it wasn't ever really meant to be a career move. It was like an outlet, right? It was really unhinged, uh, an unfiltered, unhinged platform for creative expression. And I watched a lot of creators back then who don't really use the platform as their main creative outlet anymore, like Live Lava Live, uh, aka Mitchell Davis, and Mika Kitty, aka Tessa Violet. And it's like so weird for me to see Tessa Violet really like flourishing as a pop artist nowadays, because to me, she will always be Mika Kitty. So it's just like so weird to see that transition. I also watched a lot of the heavy hitters back in the day, like Jenna Marbles and Markiplier. And I will most definitely do an episode dedicated to Markiplier, who I love so dearly. Um, But that's not the focus for today. Today, I am going to be talking about the one and only Daniel Howell, formerly known as Dan is not on fire, formerly one half of Dan and Phil. And so I'm really excited to talk about Dan with you all today because I have so much love in my heart for him. So I was really into British YouTubers in high school. Um, I was kind of down this like rabbit hole of who knew who, how did they know each other? What are the intricacies of their relationships? Like it it was kind of like doing 40 chess, like trying to map all the, or like the Charlie day meme with like the red string because social media back then is not what it is now. So you really like YouTube was one of the only platforms you kind of figure it out. Um, there was probably stuff going on on Twitter, but I actually didn't make a Twitter until 2016. So I was kind of late to the game with that. But there were so many of them, like Charlie is so cool, like, uh, which shout out to my transgender queen. Uh, I absolutely love her, still love her. Um, I learned to play ukulele from her and I would make her brownie recipe nearly every week, like totally obsessed with her. Um, There was Kick the PJ, um, who still makes videos, but isn't what I would call like a big YouTube heavy hitter. He has a really niche audience and I was really into his style of storytelling and honestly kind of still am. I just don't follow him as closely. Um, He had a series called Stories from Somewhere that was so captivating to me. Um, And I would just play that album on repeat 
I was also super into Chris Kendall. He had like this weird, absurdist, dark humor. Um, I feel like I feel like back then there were like two kinds of British YouTubers, right? Total nerd, weirdo creatives, and then like hot lifestyle bloggers. Um, and that was like it. So for the the latter category, that that was like people like Zoella and Alfie Days and Casper Lee. Um, and I followed them like on and off for years and I still check in with them from time to time. But the one person that really actually got their hooks in me really early and simply never let go was the lovely, lovely Daniel Howell. I have literally followed Dan's career since... So my name is Dan. And if you had a, a visceral reaction to that audio, you are my people. Um, and I did actually find him from Amazing Phil, who I found through Kick the PJ. And while I still love Phil and PJ, Dan was it for me. At the time that that audio clip that I just played you uh, was from, he had this like chaotic theater kid energy that I was still grasping onto for all of high school. And at least public facing, he had this perception of being totally unafraid to be unhinged, self-deprecating, loud, kind of like almost reactionary in some ways, um, while maintaining a proper amount of emo aesthetic, which really called to me. And I have binged every bit of content I could from him from 2009 to present. He's one of the only YouTubers I still have notifications for. And there was this element of finding my masculinity as a teenager that's like connected to my love of Dan. And I feel like throughout this podcast, I'm probably going to keep coming back to this through line because genuinely a lot of the things that I have previously or am currently uh, hyper fixated on um, were and are informing my own journey around gender and sexuality and identity. And back then I was really seeking examples of manhood that felt aligned with my own anywhere that I could find them. Dan was it. He had the floppy scene fringe, the tight pants. He had these like really adorable, like rosy cheeks with like scattered moles on his face. Um, and he wore like tight purple and blue v-necks. Like he was really um, the aesthetic that I was captivated by. His voice even now still isn't super deep. Uh, it It's like masculine, but it's not like a deep baritone. Um, and, our, and our sense of humor was and honestly still is exactly the same. Not to mention, I was and probably still am head over heels in love with him, if I'm being really honest. Uh, six, six feet of like soft emo boy was and still is my cup of tea. And back in the day, like 2009, 2010, he did not shy away from being shirtless. And as a teenager, I was definitely getting my fix. And I was also like totally transfixed by his friendship with Phil. So Phil was famous first. Um, there's a little bit of like, I think nowadays playful contention among Dan and Phil fans of like Dan being more famous, but Phil was first. Um, so Phil is like legendary and Phil is the one who really motivated and inspired Dan to start a YouTube channel. And so they were basically co-branded at one time. And a lot of ways I think they still are and probably will always be, but I feel like they've created separate identities for themselves over the last four years, especially um, me personally. I feel like I finally started separating them a bit in my mind, like as creators, which I, I think is a testament to the time and work they've put in to kind of building their own brands. And I think uh, Phil is just like egoless in the most beautiful way. Like he really just wants everyone to win. So I think that's part of why their relationship works is that Phil never felt um, threatened by Dan's success. But if you know anything about Dan and Phil, you know that basically right up until Dan disappeared from YouTube the first time uh, in 2019, 
there was speculation about whether or not they were gay, whether or not they were a couple, um, if they are a couple, how long they've been a couple, if Dan and Phil is one big conspiracy to just like hide their secret love affair. And it really actually kind of spiraled out, spiraled out of control. Um, and I think the the peak of fanism, as it's called, um, was like 2014 to 2016 when Dan and Phil Games was really popular. And people were writing fan fiction. People were constantly blowing up their comments, DMing them, tagging them on social media, just like berating them, essentially asking them to come out, essentially. And I always have had a hard time with this because on the one hand, I was desperate as a young person for gay men to relate to in this new media format that felt so relatable. But I also think that there's something like deeply insidious about pressuring celebrities to come out. I think there's still a lot of this nowadays. Like there's a lot of discourse around like queer baiting and stuff like that. And I thought, you know, for me at least it was beautiful to kind of see these two men be so close to friends and build a life and a brand together without the added like context and pressure of romantic entanglement. And I, I kind of loved that they just wouldn't answer that they, they kind of teased it a lot and and played into it a lot, but they never really gave in to that pressure and just continued to create. And I felt like that was a really important example of masculinity to me. Like uh, this idea that like people could be constantly asking them if they're gay and they don't have to respond to it and they can still be themselves. And, you know, they didn't feel the need to like, deny it so aggressively that being gay was such a negative thing. Um, But they didn't play into it either and uh, and allow the fetishization to get out of control, which I like, at least in the the areas that they can control, like the fetishization did get out of control, but they weren't like feeding it. They were just continuing to, to make the things that they wanted to make. And this whole situation, like ultimately is what drove Dan into his hiatus. It's that it turns out he is gay. And he felt like he couldn't live an authentic life. Um, he felt pressured and was always worried about being outed. Um, and the speculation was like driving him insane towards like a mental health break. And so there are two videos that I think are essential viewing from Dan Howell. It's the one titled Basically I'm Gay and the one titled Why I Quit YouTube. And in both of these videos, he explains in his own words what his experience has been. So I won't get into it on his behalf or try to paraphrase. Like I really think that watching those videos um, is really impactful. And, uh, you know, I think it was hard, right? Because you don't want to like validate assumptions or projections or stereotypes that are being put onto you, but you also don't want to live a lie. And I love the way that he, uh, talks about it in these videos. Um, so I, I, you know, like I said, I won't, I won't get into it on his behalf, but what I will get into is how I feel like I've genuinely grown up with him since 2009. I feel like our journeys have been on a lot of similar trajectories in a lot of ways. I'm sure I'm not the only person this feel, that feels this way. I'm, I'm sure this is part of why he's remained so successful, even though he hasn't kept a consistent content schedule. But uh, in so many ways, I feel like our, our, our journeys have been kind of like along a similar path. So from 2009 to 2012, um, I was also pretending to be bisexual in MySpace for clout while I was secretly gay and panicked. And I also took down my MySpace and just pretended I never told anyone I was bisexual. I also flat out uh, denied any uh, secondary profiles that I made. I denied any uh, weird chat forums I was on and tried to like live a normie life for like a brief moment. I flat ironed my hair into oblivion, like completely unwilling to accept my natural hair texture. 
Um, I was also unnecessarily loud and pessimistic because I thought it was cool and funny. I was also desperate for connection and creation and fulfillment as a teenager and a a young adult in college, but I was feeling lost and I was pursuing academia because it's what was expected of me. Um, It was what I was told I was supposed to do. And Dan talks about that a lot in his entire YouTube career. Like it comes up a bunch in in a ton of his videos. And one of the things I admire most about Dan is that he did what I couldn't do in 2013, which was choose to drop out of college and take the risk on a creative life, uh, which put him in the public eye. And he really jumped in with both feet. And and I am extremely risk averse, so I didn't do that. I finished college and went to grad school like an idiot. <laughs> um, but uh, he's made so much uh, diverse art and done so many projects over the years. Um, he's made videos about gaming and cooking. He's made video essays. He's done blogging and storytelling all the way to like full sketch comedy. And he and Phil, Phil even did a short stint with BBC Radio where he got to interview Fallout Boy. And I swear, like my soul ascended out of my body when that interview came out. It was like my world's colliding. I was like foaming at the mouth. Like it was it was so amazing. And it was also so funny because Dan and Phil are both like six feet tall plus and fallout boy is a notoriously short band (laughs) uh so that that was just a really sweet moment that i always remember but uh he just keeps trying things and he doesn't try to put himself into a particular box in terms of like the style of content he makes he just puts out whatever is like calling to him and i really admire that so much and then uh we both came out around the same time uh so when he shared his story, it sounded so much like mine. He grew up in a small town. He was like, you know, bullied and and called the F slur in school. Um, He was like terrified and conditioned to believe that there was something deeply wrong with him and that no one would accept him. Except the difference is he had to come out with 6 million people watching. And I can't imagine that kind of pressure. And him telling his story you know, that's something that he didn't have to share with us. You know, like I said, there's all this pressure for celebrities to come out, but I just don't think that that's the culture of queerness that like I'm trying to cultivate. Like I don't, I would love to live in a world where we don't have to come out because we don't assume that everyone is straight. Right. But I know that's not the world that we live in. And so it had a huge impact on me that he came out as gay and it, and it just felt, it felt like a, an exhale almost. And him embracing his natural curls and natural hair color is actually what made me feel comfortable to stop dyeing my hair um, and let my own texture blossom. I like watched him struggle with it in real time. Like there are a lot of videos where he's like figuring out how to wash and style it and still like the way that he looks. And he's like, you know, recovering from the heat damage (laughs) that he put his curls through for so many years. Um, And it really pushed me to go on that journey with him. And I, you know, now I wear my hair curly 99% of the time, I'll still play with a flat iron every now and then, but it's um, because I want to and not because I feel pressured to look a certain way. And that curl journey was like step for step the same time as my like gender and sexuality journey. Like they're very much intertwined. And so when I look back over the last 15 years of of being a fan of his, um, I feel like we've both come into our own versions of what being queer men means to us. I love that he talks about being queer so openly and casually now. Um, And I love that he talks about how hard it was to be a late bloomer and to come out so late and to not have those foundational experiences as a young person of like 
exploration and, and making mistakes and being cringe and, and all of that. And I relate to that so much. Like I was uh, 23 when, when I came out. And so, you know, I also feel like I was coming into it a little bit later than a lot of my peers at the time, which is so wild to think about, even in terms of generational um, change and culture around queerness, like 23 being considered a late bloomer for millennials is, is so wild when we think about our ancestors. Like, there are lots of people who don't come out until they're in their 50s and 60s, even now. And for generations younger than us, like they're coming out younger than younger because they have the language and the example to look to. Um, and I think Dan is definitely a, a part of that. Um, so, you know, I like that one thing that I really, that really resonates with me about Dan's queer journey is that he doesn't lean into the aspects of gay male culture that actively harm and appropriate from black people there's this like yes queen gay male culture that is like so harmful because it steals from black culture and it um puts a lot of pressure on gay men to behave a certain way to be taken seriously as gay men and we don't actually have to do that uh to be taken seriously like we can cultivate what that means for ourselves and um dan i feel like very much sex the example of doing that which is great but since uh, his hiatus in, in 2019, he's really become like a polished and mature, but still chaotic artist and mental health advocate. He's he's kind of like bloomed into something magical that is, is very respectable to me. Um, uh, his book, You Will Get Through This Night, is so fucking important. It's like, it's a book about mental health and about his own struggle with mental health and how to get a hold of it and why it matters. It was one of the only things he put out during his hiatus during the pandemic. Um, and he would dribble little bits of content here and there. He would do interviews, but really it was all about the book. Um, and, and if you haven't read it, I highly recommend that you do. It's, it's so important. And I, I really, again, I just really admire the way that he went about that. Like he published this project because it was important to him and he didn't do like the traditional like influencer cycle around it where he's like, you know, doing brand deals and things like that. Like he, he's not a heavily sponsored content creator. He just put the book out for people to find because it mattered. And he's kind of taking a similar approach with his new series, Dystopia Daily, which has like a curated format and a set and backdrop and props. And I feel like it's an evolution of his content and not a total pivot, right? It still has that like unstructured element where like Dystopia Daily has a brand and a flavor, but it doesn't have a set topic every week. Um, and it's just about him and what he wants to put out. Um, and I see this like comfort and ease from him now through dystopia daily that I see reflected back to myself when I sit with my own progress for a moment. There's not this like overperformance happening to compensate for the things that you're not being honest with yourself and with other people about. And so the essence of what Dan is not on fire was and who Dan Howell is, is still there, but it's this like, I think riper version of it. And it's just so cool to, to watch that happen in real time. I had the wonderful opportunity to see him and Phil on tour in 2018 um, when they performed their joint comedy show, Interactive Introverts. Um, it was really cool. I was in my last year of grad school and I was kind of going through this like weird shamies thing where it's like, oh, like I'm going to go see these guys on tour that I used to like in high school and I've still been following them this whole time, but I don't tell anybody because it's like embarrassing, which again is what this podcast is about, right? It's about not being embarrassed about liking the things that we like and that earnestly enjoying things is cool actually. Um, but I wasn't there yet in 2018. I was kind of embarrassed. 
And so I took my dad with me uh, to that tour. I didn't take any of my friends. I took my dad uh, because like I mentioned in the Yu-Gi-Oh episode, my dad has always been very supportive of me hyperfixating and enjoying fandoms. And I think he has that same chip in his brain also of like really getting into things. So he like gets it. And uh, I'll never forget. He turned to me during the the pre-show playlist um, so if you've never been to a Dan and Phil show, they always play a pre-show playlist of like curated songs that they like from artists that they like, um, that they know that their community also likes. And it has like pop punk and hyper pop and K-pop. And like, it's just, it's such a, it's like basically my music taste, to be honest. And I remember uh, the very first G note of Welcome to the Black Parade played and like the whole auditorium exploded and the show hadn't even started yet. And my dad he turned to me and he said, you guys have a whole culture and community here that I had no idea about. He was so blown away that this many people wanted to come see two British, British twinks run around on stage for three hours um, and that he'd never heard of them. Um, and that that's the thesis statement, I think, um, of content creation, but also just beyond that of like making art at all. Um, you don't have to be universally famous to be successful. You just have to reach the people who understand what you're doing and connect with them. I think that's way more important than appealing to the masses. Um, And I feel like Dan has really leaned into that. And I feel like a lot of these legacy YouTubers have. And I think that's really cool to see. Like, uh, you don't have to be marketable. You just have to be authentic and honest and make things that you love. So my journey with Dan came full circle last fall, fall of 2022 where I got to meet him in person at his tour, We're All Doomed. Um, It was his first solo tour uh, with this really cool show uh, that he put together. It's like a comedy performance, but it's also like uh, theater in a way and social commentary. It's, It's very cool. And I had agonized over my outfit because I really wanted to show up as myself but as like my best self and and show up in a way that I thought he would appreciate because we're so similar in so many ways. Um, and so I really pulled out the, all the stops. I put together like a black and white duochromatic outfit that I just like felt in my heart that he would like, or at least I hope that he would like. Um, I'm actually getting misty just thinking about it right now because um, during the meet and greet, I really felt like I was catching up with an old friend. And I know that this is teetering dangerously on the edge of like diluted parasocial dynamics, but please humor me just for a minute. He gave me like the biggest, warmest bear hug and was like, oh my God, hi, it's so nice to see you. And he like twirled me around and said, okay, outfit. And y'all, when I tell you that's one of the few moments in my life I've really felt seen, like fundamentally seen, like I thought about what I was going to wear for so long and then he like immediately commented on it and it it just was such a cathartic feeling almost um and we chatted uh you know you have like an allocated allocated amount of time for the meet and greet so like you do have to get moved along so it wasn't super long um but it was one of the most like connected meet and greets I've ever done like I've done a couple meet and greets in my life um and like the one with fallout boy like I mentioned was super rushed and I, and I felt like it was a blur, like I hardly remember it, but this one felt really, um, intentional and connected. Uh, so we chatted about how, like I'd followed him from the very beginning, how I was so proud of him, 
um, for putting himself back out there, um, how I'm also an aging emo millennial queer trying to cope with the existential dread of being alive. Um, and he, you know, it, it was like, he like mentioned how it was nice to see like a guy in the meet and greet line. Um, and so that was really, it, it felt reminiscent of, um, the interaction that I talked about in my follow-up episode with Joe Troman, where I went to his book tour in, uh, Brooklyn and got to really actually talk with him about the book and, and about masculinity. Um, and he, you know, commented how grateful he was that I had talked about manhood and mental health and masculinity. So I, I, and those, uh, uh, experiences happened within like two weeks of each other. Like I went to the book tour for Joe Troman and then I saw Dan like two weeks later. Um, so it was, it was a really impactful time in my life, um, coming into like full adulthood, like moving out of young adulthood into adulthood and having these like really deeply connected moments with two of my like lifelong heroes who I've admired for so long. And it, it was just like, it was so cool. And I, I feel like I'll always remember that time in my life in 2022 where like I felt myself step into a growth period with people who kind of like stewarded me through it, through the art that they made. So yeah, chatting with Dan just felt really easy. Um, and I had brought with me like this blown out Instax Polaroid that I'd taken of like a sunrise in winter in Portland, Maine, like over the, over the Casco Bay. Um, and it's like, eerie and melancholy and the light is dispersed and it's like totally Dan's vibe and I told him that I brought it for him to sign as for like my thing that I wanted him to sign because I felt like he would appreciate it and he totally did he was like this is so fucking cool like yes this is exactly what I'm into like thank you so much like and so I have it hanging on my wall above my bedside table um and like I said I know that this is kind of like teetering on parasocial but what I what I think is true about Dan and also secondarily what I was just talking about with Joe is that they are trying to step into their own authenticity and figure out what connecting with their audience really looks like for them. And so I feel like the parasocialness is reciprocal. And Dan actually talked about that on Dystopia Daily, that he's like fully participating willingly. Um, so I don't feel quite as bad about that. Um, but I know that, you know, I totally understand that like, I don't actually know him, but I think that the way that he puts himself out there and what he does share is so impactful and relatable that it's okay to like see yourself in him a little bit. And so it's, I feel like I'm giving myself and and any other uh, folks out there who are listening permission to like allow yourself to feel seen. Um, and the show was amazing as well. Like uh, he's never done a solo tour. It was totally different from anything Dan and Phil had ever done. Like I said, he really, I feel like stepped into his own as a creative was truly like so poignant and intelligent and hilarious and existential and horrifying and hopeful. But the meet and greet is really what sticks out to me the most. And I really did mean it when I told him that I'm proud of him for trying again um, and again and again and just not giving up and continuing to make things for launching new projects and, and putting himself out there, even though it doesn't come easily. We shared like the same chip in our brains about like, being perceived creates this cringe within us that's so severe that we almost like turn inside out. But he keeps making things anyway. He pushes himself past the ick and keeps trying. And I aspire to be that kind of creative. And I'm working toward that now. Uh, this podcast is part of that. I'm showing up every other week right here with all of you to spill my guts about all the things I love because I think it matters. And, and I, I'm doing it anyway and trying it anyway, even though it's scary because I think it matters. Um, and I think Dan would agree with me all for this episode. Um, it's a little bit shorter this this time around, but thank you so much for listening to me gush about my 15-year-long crush on Dan Howell. I appreciate you. 
Um, if you're still a fan of Dan in 2023, let me know. Um, and if no one else has got me, I know my friends Megan, Amy, and Arslan got me. Shout out. Uh, y'all are my my fannies for life. Come hang out with me on Instagram and chat about your favorite Dan and Phil, Phil collab if you want, or maybe your favorite uh, Dan content that you put out, or maybe if you discovered Dan Hell from this podcast, which is unlikely, but maybe you did, uh, let me know. That would be so cool. If you like this podcast and you want to show uh, support for the, sh- for, for the project, uh, you can leave me a review on whatever platform you're listening to this on um, and turn on automatic downloads. It really helps a lot in helping get your fix get discovered. And as always, if you want me to chat about a specific property or you have thoughts on one I've already covered, you can send me an email at getyourfixpod at gmail.com. Um, so that's all I have for you. And I will catch you all in the next one to chat about our next hyperfixation. fixation.